Hello, and welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. Fred Burton is a New York Times bestselling author and a premier authority on protective intelligence and security. Writing alongside Samuel Katz, Beirut Rules debuted nearly three years ago. But you know what? It's still being talked about today. Other of his books include Ghost, Chasing Shadows, and Under Fire. We'll be talking about those and Beirut Rules in just a moment. I want to take a brief moment to say thank you for listening wherever you get your podcast, and I hope you'll subscribe to our YouTube channel. Now, how about you and I get in the Thriller Zone? Thank you so much for uh, having me on. That's very kind of you. I, I feel like I'm in rarefied air looking at some of your guests. Rarefied air. Uh, let me tell you something. You're among the rarefied air. How about that? I don't know about that. Uh, I'm just, uh, grateful that, uh, you're, you're interested in, uh, in my books or Beirut rules. So thank you so much, David. Sure. Since this show has taken off, I've got such a stack of books to read and I, I've always been a good reader, but I mean, like it's gotten a little crazy. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And I get the publishers that mail me books and I, I literally can't read all the books that I receive. And, and, you know, you talk about just at times, the nice people we have in this business, Uh, you know, Brad Thor and Jack Carr have gone out of their way to, you know, to have my book and their books, you know, the last to do that was Don Bentley with his new Tom Clancy book. And I had no idea he was going to put me and, and my book in, in his Clancy novel, which, you know, for somebody like me that grew up reading Tom Clancy, that's just such an honor. Sure. And he's just such a nice guy. I mean, this business, you know, for all the, you know, as well as I do, the business can be dreadful at times, but, you know, for the most part, the I've met the nicest people in, in this business. I would 100% agree. And I wanted to start out of the gate by saying uh, thank you for your service and what an honor to finally meet you. Well, you're very kind. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, you know, my my work in the government was a long time ago, but it but it seems like yesterday. I think Bob Seger wrote a song about that. Yeah, exactly. I have learned. I it, it's funny. Social media has a lot of blessings and curses to its nature, and I find that I spend entirely too much time Instagram stalking. <laughs> Who and doesn't, David? Uh, I know. And it's funny because just as I was setting up the board, my phone is pinging Fred Burton, official Fred Burton, liking a photograph. And I'm like, isn't it funny? We're just, we're, we're, years ago, we couldn't have dreamt of this kind of access and, and uh, proximity. And all of a sudden now, within just a click of a button, we're connected and it's really awesome. Well, it's amazing. Let me look at, look at this. I could not have imagined as a kid growing up in the 60s and the 70s. And and even when I started out as an agent, you know, when we had three by five index cards that I use uh, to write myself notes, that that was our uh, Rolodex of names of suspected terrorists and and stalkers and assassins. When I first started as an agent, David, we did not have a computer. And we basically worked off of old school uh, accordion folders with cables and telegrams. And, you know, you would open one and, and it was like opening up, uh, you know, Al Capone's vault. You never knew what was in there. Nothing was ever indexed properly. You would find case material from some other case. I mean, it was just one of just constant chaos and, uh, that was just the world we were in. And I think about technology, Fred. Uh, I heard you on a podcast speaking to Piccolo, I believe, and he was talking about, you know, we've gone from uh, big microphones and reel-to-reel tape recorders uh, hanging on a wall to now microchips and microphones that can be embedded, you know, inside your ear. It's the technology that you've seen grow has got to be staggering. Well, it's really amazing uh, when you start thinking of just the evolution of technology in not only the everyday day-to-day use of people, but in the intelligence business and and even in the book business. I mean, think about things we're doing today on social media with Twitter and Instagram and so forth. I mean, uh, imagine how difficult it was when Clancy was first writing books or John le Carre. 
yeah. or Freddie Forsyth. And, uh, you know, you didn't have Amazon to order from or a publisher's website to order from. And people actually had to had to go out and visit a bookstore. And there was no such thing as a Kindle. I know. That's great. And it, it hasn't been that long ago. That's the the bizarre thing. And I, I heard this story recently about the the span of technology and how fast it's happened just in the last 20, 40, 50 years and what the next 50 will be and the speed with which it will progress will be mind boggling. You know, I won't be around to see it probably, but uh, when you start looking downstream as to where this will be 25 years from now, I mean, think about it right now. We have instantaneous communication. I mean, what's faster than a tweet or a message text? Right. And what's next? Is it trying to develop or being able to sort out these deep fakes or positive identification, such as how do I even know I'm actually talking to you? Right. Things like that. You know, what's on the horizon downstream to me is just fascinating to think about. One of your fans said, and I love this because it's so true. No one makes well-researched nonfiction read like a thriller like Fred Burton. And I thought that is really superbly put. And so I want to start off the show with how in the world do you do it? What's your secret? Well, uh, first, that's uh, very kind of uh, whoever posted that on my on my account. Uh, that's, you know, when you write books, you know this as well as I do, that getting those kinds of comments back really mean a lot. Not only has someone purchased your book, but they've actually read it and they appreciate the, the blood, sweat and tears that goes into trying to get a book published, which which we know collectively how difficult that is today. Well, for me, that's the part of the, the journey of putting a book together that I like the best. I'm in the process now of, of doing that for book number five for me. And I'm not smart enough to write uh, thrillers like some I know on this call. But uh, the nonfiction part, you know, for me, it's it's no different than a cold case. I approach it as a cold case investigation. For example, in Beirut rules, and, and I'm very sad to say this, when I was an agent working the kidnapping and murder of Bill Buckley, I did not know a lot about the man. And a lot of it was because of the secrecy, and a lot of it was because of the lack of technology. I We just did not have the tools to be, be able to Google Bill Buckley, station chief, sure. and to learn about that individual. So when I started putting the book together, uh, one of the things I like to do with all of my uh, nonfiction stories involving families, David, is I approach the families. Uh, and in this case, I approached uh, Bill's uh, elderly sister and Bill's uh, very elderly significant other, Bev Surrett. And I said, hey, I worked Bill's case when I was a young agent, and I very much like to tell his story, but I want you to help me, help me bring Bill to life. You knew him better than I ever would. And they were very reluctant and pr protective. And the other thing I did, David, was I approached the CIA uh, right out of the gate. And I said, hey, I'm Fred Burton. I used to work on the hostage location task force. I'd like to tell Bill Buckley's story and I want your help. Uh, and I actually went to Langley and I, I met with uh, the historian and I met with uh, one of their communications officers that worked for the director. And I said, you know, you know me from my previous books, but uh, I really would like to declassify what you can declassify from Bill's records. I need some pictures if possible. And if you can put me in touch with some of the people that Bill worked with at the time of his kidnapping. And, you know, it's amazing when you ask, you know, you do get help in this world. I, it's something I've tried to teach teach others, um, much like you and I, we help a lot of people in this business. And uh, I got a lot of help from a lot of good people to help me put Bill's story together. So I greatly enjoy putting the pieces of the cold cases together. I, you know, it's, it's awesome. I get the part about the, um, I mean, I certainly get New York Times bestselling author part, but as I was researching you and, and I should know this but I don't know it to the depth that I want to know it. And what exactly does an authority on protective intelligence security 
an executive production mean and do? It's a, it sounds like, well, it's a, it's a very handsome title, Fred, very handsome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> I, I uh, could maybe use you to help me with my marketing. Uh, the, uh, in essence, uh, back during the 80s, when I started looking and studying all the different kidnappings and attacks and bombings, I realized that how we were protecting people and buildings was simply not working. That in essence, the bad guys were always one step ahead. So we started dissecting attacks from a lessons learned perspective as to how you could apply that in a practical setting. And in many ways, it's not rocket science. So for example, protective intelligence is just collating all the threats and analysis involving uh, a potential threat actor uh, against an individual, such as when we were protecting Princess Diana, mm -hmm. who was a wonderful lady. We enjoyed her protecting her. Most people envision the protection team as, you know, the, the nice guys and gals with the, the Ray-Ban shades and the earpieces. And what dawned on me is that if we could put other uh, surveillance outside of that protective umbrella, we could look for the threats before they got into the kill zone or the attack zone. So uh, in essence, protective intelligence is analysis and investigations. Then the other aspect of that, David, is counter surveillance, where you're actually on the perimeter looking for time and distance variables on individuals being stalked and followed and so forth. So uh, we actually rolled that out first on uh, the likes of the British royals, like Princess Diana and her children, uh, Prince Charles, Yasser Arafat, uh, others like them. And we're very successful with that model. So I get more credit than I deserve for that. Uh, but uh, it's something that uh, is very effective in the field of protection today. And most people never, ever see those counter surveillance assets because they are fixated on that person. Sure, and and uh, the element of surprise would be removed if you knew all the players surrounding the scene, wouldn't it? Exactly. If someone were to ask you, uh, you know, let's just say, for instance, they, they wanted to get into this field, how would you direct them? Yeah, it's a great question. I get asked that a lot, uh, not only via LinkedIn, but social media and when I teach uh, various topics like terrorism or protective intelligence. and. You know, there's really no set path to get in this business. Obviously, there are certain routes you can take, whether that be the State Department Diplomatic Security Service, which, quite frankly, uh, I don't know how the heck I got in back in the day. Uh, today, it's so selective, and there's so many people applying for these jobs. Uh, the Secret Service, uh, the CIA actually has a pretty robust protection team that uh, helps cover the director of the Central Intelligence. Uh, obviously, military experience helps to some degree. But what I see in the private sector today, uh, which is really interesting, is there's a whole category of protective security agents and protective intelligence analysts that are homegrown, that are self-learned. Uh, they go to college. They might study criminal justice or homeland security or intelligence-related topics. And then they go to work for a Fortune 100 in their corporate security department, and that's how they go. And there's actually, uh, I know a handful of individuals today that are, that are getting their PhD in this topic, meaning uh, global security or corporate security, which was unheard of, you know, 30 years ago. So uh, the industry is very much um, a hybrid today with a lot of formers and exes of this and that and all the alphabet soup agencies. And then we have 40 to 50% that are self-taught, self-learned, uh, just working their way through the ranks. Yeah, and the reason I ask that is if you wanna be a cop, you you, do, you you got a pretty good idea how that works. You wanna go into CIA, CIA, you got a pretty good idea how that works, FBI, similarly. But this seems like such a special specialty, but I can see how, if you had been in that, uh, you were a police officer, so you, you would certainly know how that trail of events would happen. But I always find that interesting uh, how people come about into those positions. And and you've served on some of the 
most high-profile investigations, of course, one of the most famous, uh, hunt and arrest of uh, Ramzi Yusuf, the mastermind behind the, uh, the first World Trade Center bombing. And I want to know, if you can tell my listeners, what was it like to be in the, in the world, in the circle of uh, bin Laden's number one bomb maker? I mean, that would be such a heady experience, I have to imagine. Well, uh, I get more credit, much more credit than I deserve for that, David. Uh, that was a, a uh, unbelievable team effort. Uh, and, and like in most cases in this business in the, in the 80s and in the 90s, you had to have a fair amount of luck. And one of the things that I was fortunate to be a part of was uh, we had and hosted and created the Rewards for Justice program which at the time was only a $2 million bounty, you know, for the likes of Ramsey Yosef, the mastermind of the first World Trade Center bombing and, and others. It, it ended up being a $20 million program for bin Laden. It's extraordinarily successful. And I would encourage your listeners to check out their website, uh, Re Rewards for Justice. And uh, that program was in my office. Uh, it was part of our protective intelligence, uh, counterterrorism division. And we also had the rewards for justice program. So we got very creative and innovative. Um, I didn't know you were going to ask me about this, or I could have I pulled out one of my uh, original matchbooks that we designed with, with posters on them. And, you know, uh, the concept in general is just one that centers on the old wild, wild west wanted posters that if we paid people for information, they would come forth with information. And we were very successful with that. And in the capture of Ramsey Yosef, we got very lucky with a human asset, a human source who came forward and said, I know where he's going to be. And, you know, of course, uh, we didn't believe him because we were getting sightings of Yosef all over the world. And a lot of them were just people after the reward that, that had no direct access. But lo and behold, uh, this source did. And, you know, we worked the investigation in a period of, I think it was a little less than 72 hours from the time the uh, human source surfaced to us getting Yosef in custody uh, was Timing, like so many things in life, uh, luck, being in the right place at the right time. We also had some logistical challenges in that this all took place in Pakistan. Uh, we also had to worry about uh, getting a human source and family out of the country. So that logistically was highly complex. Uh, in those days, um, our relationship with Pakistan was somewhat strained or challenged uh, to, to put it uh, diplomatically. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so it was, uh, you know, a fair amount of good teamwork and luck uh, to, to capture him. You know, I, I hope this is the right phrase. I'm thinking of, of that first attack as a uh, colossal breach of security. But do you think that that moment created, for lack of a better term, a, a new chapter in our history as it pertains to being truly what I would call awake to the terror that lies on the borders of our country? And or do you think it took something even more? Do you, do you think it took the ratcheting up of 9-11 to happen to do so? Because it's certainly a demarcation of what was before and what is today. Yeah, I think it was the latter, David. Uh, you know, even if you look at the first World Trade Center attack in 93, we actually had a preceding event, which was the political assassination of Rabbi Meir Kahani in New York City by El Said Nosser, an Egyptian, that was tied into the first World Trade Center bombing cell. And, uh, you know, that was a tripwire that some of us in the weeds recognized. Uh, whether or not we could get the National Security Council or the White House interested in any of these was always pushing a boulder up a hill. And it didn't matter if this was Republican or Democratic kind of presidents in office. We all, you know, just suffered from a lack of terrorism being a national priority. So we had the murder of Rabbi Mark Ahani. We had the first World Trade Center bombing. And that really didn't move the needle, quite frankly. Uh, it should have, yeah. but it didn't. You know, it took the strategic strike uh, by Al-Qaeda on 9-11 
to to wake us up as a nation to to the threat that that existed. So, you know, I'm I'm I'd like to sit, I'd like to paint a different picture, but there isn't one in my mind. It's hard to believe that it's been 20 years since 9/11, and I was watching a documentary just this past weekend, and the images threw me right back to that sparkly blue, uh, you know, fall day in September. And I was horrified all over again. And I thought, you know, everyone, such a cliche, but every American can recall that moment, 8.46 a.m. Eastern time, September 11th. And as the memory haunts us today, I'm wondering the way we view security, since this is what we're talking about, is going to be forever changed. And, you know, very first thing that people think of the, the longer TSA lines. But can you share with my audience what all of us can do um, to be more vigilant and what we can do. I mean, there's the government and the police forces and, and such, but what can we do to be, to A, keep that from happening again and, and B, be prepared from that when that were to happen again? Because something tells me you're going to say somewhere in this conversation uh, that, uh, yeah, we, we ain't seen nothing yet or something to that effect. Well, I think uh, the burden of responsibility, and, and some may not like hearing this, is on you, meaning the person, the individual. Make sure that you have a personal plan, that you have a plan for yourself and for your family. Uh, you should uh, have uh, enough uh, provisions in place and a go bag to be able to very quickly very quickly evacuate from whatever kind of natural disaster or act of terror that could occur. Uh, a lot of this in this business is about preparation and planning and to at least think about what you would do in those kinds of circumstances. Uh, I'm, I'm shocked that, you know, here we are 20 years later and, you know, we have uh, horrific examples of everything from wildfires to hurricanes and still you'll see a tremendous amount of people that are just not prepared uh, or they're, they're driving around in their cars with, you know, an eighth of a, a tank of gas in their vehicle. So, you know, there's some just common sense kind of things that you can do. And, you know, having lived and worked in public safety for a good number of years, uh, I'm smart enough to know that uh, I'm not going to wait around for the government to try to come and help me, Fred Burton. I'm going to take matters into my own hands and recognize that the government is going to be overwhelmed with whatever event could be unfolding. And by the time they get to you, Joe Citizen, it's going to be a while. Yeah. So I think there's an attitude uh, that, well, you know, the government will help me. Well, they can and they will, and they do a damn good job of it uh, at most of the time, unless there's an overwhelming event like you will see unfold pretty much every day around America today from just natural disasters. It's funny. My wife and I have this running joke. Uh, she, she won't like me telling this, but she has a tendency to let the gas can, uh, the gas tank go a little bit lower than I do. I like to always keep it half or above. And so I made the comment, I'm like, you know, there's going to come a day when all of a sudden we won't have thought about it and the tank will be low and, something will happen and you'll have to get to the gas station. And my mind flashes back to the Northridge earthquake. This is a side note, but it, it, it has a similar feeling. And it was a January and the Northridge earthquake hit. And I only lived two miles from the epicenter. So I felt it pretty well. But within the next couple of hours, the volume of mayhem that occurred between people strapping on AK-47s to go to the 7-Eleven to get a pack of cigarettes, a gallon of milk, and some water uh, was staggering. And I'll, I'll never forget that image. And I thought, it's it's just kind of the same thing over and over. It, when, when we are backed into a corner and, and a situation happens to that degree, to your point, yeah, they're gonna, uh, Big Brother's going to help us out, but there's a whole lot more people every single day and there's a very long line to get to you and it'd be, it would behoove you to be ahead of the game rather than behind by being prepared. This feels like a conversation for you, me, and Jack Carr. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, Jack would love this discussion. We have to drag in Brad Thor uh, as well and and Don Bentley. We could have a roundtable about this. You know, between between all of us, I'm sure there'd be some pretty decent ideas pop out of that. But the, something tells me that there's no better prepared author than Jack Carr at this moment in time for some yeah. reason, just uh, predicated upon looking at his website. Yeah, between his artillery and his hunting uh, acumen, etc. Yeah, he is. Nobody's going to surprise him, and uh, no one will be better prepared than him. I yeah, tell I him this all the time. Every time I have him on my podcast or we chat, it it always costs me money because he's always recommending something else that I I certainly don't really need, right. but then I gotta have. <laughs> so uh, I blame him for that. Yeah, he he is he's gotten very good at his job. That's for sure. I was reading an article on thehill.com, which I am now a subscriber of as, as of yesterday, and uh, it was an article you wrote entitled uh, "Ripples of September 11th: Afghanistan Counterterrorism and Concerns for Corporate America." And it made me think. Uh, by the way, excellent article. Thank you. Made me think. Do you feel that terrorism wasn't uh, as big of a national priority back in the 80s and 90s, and and why? Well, it wasn't. Uh, and uh, trust me, I, I've thought long and hard uh, about this. I was talking to uh, one of my former agent colleagues yesterday who called me out of the blue, just reminiscing about one of our cases that we had worked. It dawned on me again that it just wasn't a national priority. And I don't know the reason why. Uh, I, I think that if you look at this from a historical perspective, and I am a student of history, David, that uh, it should have been, meaning why do we have to wait for 9-11 to see the damage that already occurred? I mean, exactly. my goodness, you go back to uh, 1979. This is, a, this is an interesting data point for your viewers. Everybody remembers the U.S. Embassy seizure in Tehran in 1979, and many attribute it to the collapse of the Carter administration as a result of that. Having said that, do you know on that exact same day in Kabul, Afghanistan, our United States ambassador, Adolf Dubbs, was kidnapped and murdered? Very few people know that. I didn't know that. On the exact same day. So you can either you can go back in time and look at the run up, even preceding that in 1976, we had uh, the U.S. ambassador in Lebanon kidnapped and murdered in 79. We had uh, Tehran. We had uh, the our U.S. ambassador kidnapped and murdered in Kabul. We had the U.S. embassy facility seizure and fire like Benghazi in Islamabad in 79. And then you fast forward into 83, we have the first Beirut embassy bombing. Then we have the Marine bombing. We have the second embassy bombing in Beirut. Then we have the US embassy bombing in Kuwait. And the list just goes on and on and on and on. So, you know, one of the takeaways I learned in this business, David, when I first became a counterterrorism agent was that you could kill Americans and you could kill a lot of them as long as you did it overseas. And as long as you space it out, because for the most part, there was very little impact. There wasn't homeland security, and it was very little impact on the day-to-day -day lives of most Americans. Okay, hold that thought, and we'll be right back. From the New York Times bestselling co-authors of Under Fire comes the riveting story of the kidnapping and murder of CIA Station Chief William Buckley. Beirut Rules is the pulse-by-pulse -pulse account of Buckley's abduction, torture, and murder at the hands of Hezbollah terrorists. Drawing on never-before-seen government documents and interviews with Buckley's co-workers, friends, and family, Fred Burton and Samuel Katz reveal how the relentless search for Buckley ignited a war against terror that continues to shape the Middle East today. Pick up a copy of a nonfiction story that truly reads like a thriller. Fred Burton's Beirut Rules, available wherever books are sold. You're listening to The Thriller Zone. And now, back to the show. Here's the question that always goes through my mind. How, how could it have taken 9-11 for us to finally go, oh, wow, okay, I guess we should wake up. And um, does that, you know, has our sense of alert just softened? Has it softened? Have we gotten lazy? Have we gotten 
self-confident, overly self-confident, secure. Uh, and, and what makes us think that, that it wouldn't, that something of that level, if not twice as bad, is being planned right now? Well, I think if you look at the history of just the element of surprise, going back to Pearl Harbor as an example, right. it, it almost takes that to move the needle uh, for America, meaning uh, we really have to get walloped hard in order to have these kinds of, str of strategic shifts in our society. And let's face it, from a physical security perspective and from a threat perspective, most people don't think events can occur, nor do they plan for them. And quite frankly, it's so hard to shift bureaucracies in any kind of government organization. So if you look at the success that Al-Qaeda had uh, against us going back to 93, it, a large measure of that was the entire intelligence community was geared towards uh, the, the Cold War, towards the Soviet Union, towards communism, towards espionage. And we really were not very good at all in the counterterrorism arena. Even though we've been fighting insurgencies forever, we were simply not that good at it. So uh, it takes these kinds of incidents in, in my assessment, in my lifetime. And, and even you can look at from a tactical perspective. I'll give you an example, David. I'm, I'm talking to um, uh, a couple of the last men standing that were, on, were at Dealey Plaza when President Kennedy was assassinated. And talking to them, it's a vivid reminder of how unaware we were to that kind of threat. Now, you and I would think today, well, what do you mean there's no counter sniper teams? What do you mean the president of the United States is riding around on an open top limo? Right. Why isn't somebody looking for a sniper? It, it wasn't even in the mindset during that time period that something like that could occur. And so I think that's what happens to us as Americans. We, we need that shock and awe. We need that surprise in order to people to say, oh, heck, we better do something about that. Yeah, it's a naivete, isn't it? I think it's that compiled with a rigid bureaucracy that doesn't like to think outside the box, that yeah. it's easier to do nothing than to actually change. I mean, heck, I saw that when we designed the protective intelligence program in the 80s at the State Department. Well, I can't tell you the number of people that looked at me and said, well, Fred, we've been protecting people this way for the last... 30 years. And I would say, well, how well have we actually been doing that? Right. The point being is that there's always resistance to change. And it, there's, there's always bad resistance to change in the security and the intelligence space. And it takes these kinds of moments uh, for America to course correct. I mean, good, bad, or, or however you want to view TSA, let's face it, They've been effective at stopping bombings and hijackings inside the United States. Job well done. Yes. But it took 9-11 in order to, for that to happen. And, and you may have already answered this in part, but I'm going to refer back to that article on the Hill. It, it, you made a phrase. Uh, you said a phrase. What do you mean by it's not the danger that we know that's the problem. It's the one we never expect. We're, we're on the same line of thinking, aren't we? Yes, we are. It's what's on the horizon that can surprise you? And have you thought about that? Meaning we've all lived through and still are this horrific pandemic. And if you had wound back the clock before this occurred, and if you had walked into any boardroom, David, in America and said, you know, the world is going to shut down, there's going to be a global pandemic, uh, people would look, look at you like you're crazy. Yeah. And so it takes these kinds of moments at time in history to have course corrections. And so today, and I see it through my discussions with corporate America, you actually do have companies thinking about these kinds of issues now, whether you wanna call them the black swans or you wanna call the, the events that's over the horizon, what can happen to us next that we need to be thinking about so at least we can start planning for 
So we're not all running around like chickens with their heads cut off when it happens. Back to your point about keeping your car and your home and your person prepared, the go kit, the plenty of water, the batteries, the artillery, the food and so forth. Um, you, you said black swans. I'm not familiar with that phrase. That's the phrase that in essence, where something comes out that uh, surprises you, such as everybody's used to white swans and so when you see a black swan, it's like, oh, my goodness, where did that come from? So a, a black swan event is that kind of game changer that nobody's expected, but it just exists out there and rears its ugly head and causes usually a catastrophic event. And you'll hear that term also being used on 9-11 for what brought down the Twin Towers, which actually even surprised bin Laden. But, you know, an event that causes so much chaos that you're least expecting it. It's a high, it's a low probability, but but high impact kind of event. And those are the kinds of things we're dealing with right now with the pandemic. You know, this is something that forever in national intelligence estimates, people discussed that pandemics are something we need to be worried about. There's, you've actually touched on something that that I've given a great deal of thought about. Quite frankly, some of these issues are so complex and so huge for a range of different variables that it's almost impossible to get in front of at times. And I think terrorism was one of them in retrospect, meaning if you looked at all the domestic acts of terrorism we had in the 60s and the 70s, and then you look into the international acts of terrorism in the 80s and the 90s, you would think that we would have been better prepared predicated on what's happened to us before. Right. But we weren't. And I did a keynote for the State Department uh, uh, about a year ago, looking at the evolution of this. And it's not as though these haven't happened before. And it's like we never learn from things that have happened in the past. And it takes these kinds of catastrophic events, whether it be a JFK uh, in, in Dallas or an RFK in Los Angeles, the assassination of Robert Kennedy, by Sirhan Sirhan to cause the Secret Service and, and the Congress to protect those running for public office. So you, you do need these events at times, I think, to force change that's usually mandated by Congress. There's something I want to jump back to because you, you caught my attention on something I'd never thought about before. You made a comment about it even surprised bin Laden. What, what did you mean by that, the, the tower destruction itself? Yeah, I... I don't think he ever expected that operation to be as successful as it was predicated upon some of the evidence that was recovered when he was uh, hunted down and killed by SEAL Team 6, in that if you looked at some of the messages and some of the writings that uh, I, I don't think they ever thought that they could collapse the actual towers when they hit it. Now, I know from the work we did in the, the 93 bombing that, you know, quite frankly, if you look at some of the explosive modeling that we had looked at at the time period, that tactically, if that device had been placed street side at a busy Manhattan lunchtime, you probably would have killed a heck of a lot of more people and had more casualties than by burying that van in the basement of the trade towers. And so thank goodness that was not placed street side similar to what we saw at uh, Oklahoma City. So, you know, sometimes you have to be grateful that the terrorists do make tactical mistakes. But, uh, you know, so there's a lot of lessons to be learned by studying these, these previous events in order to try to defend them better going forward. I'm surely going to rattle a cage in some form or fashion with this next comment. But when I was reconsidering recently what happened on the steps of the Capitol on January 6th, I, I can't help but wonder, couldn't help but wonder then, can't help but wonder then, did some of those threats come from outside powers or, or right in our own backyards? Because that was, it was, it was another, I felt like, turning point in the collective consciousness of America that would force us to rethink that situation. No one ever would have thought, oh, a bunch of Clowns are going to break into the Capitol and have their way with the building. And I just thought, you know, did, did those threats, were, was it solely uh, outside or inside? What are your thoughts on that? 
Well, I've been interviewed a lot on this and I've written about this, David. And in essence, when you start thinking of uh, protective intelligence failures, that is one, meaning you had uh, all the signals uh, resonating loudly that there were going to be problems. So why wasn't the U.S. Capitol Police better prepared? Now, I know the U.S. Capitol Police. We used to work with them. We used to do a lot of joint protective operations with them. They're a darn good outfit. They are one of the best trained, uh, huge staff. They actually have a protective intelligence division. So why were they so surprised? And I think in many ways what happens with the element of surprise, like we had just chatted about, mm -hmm. it's much like what happened to our five young agents in Benghazi when they were overwhelmed, meaning at times it's like the frog in the boiling pot. Yeah. It's like, when isn't Al-Qaeda planning to kill you? When isn't Washington having a demonstration? When isn't there another threat on the horizon? And if you look at Washington, D.C. in general, there are demonstrations every day somewhere, and some of them are quite large. I've monitored and been in a lot of them and watched them. And so there were some tactical failures leading up to that that is almost, I think, part of the problem, meaning that look at the organization. It's very political. Uh, I've, I've had several people tell me this, that they just don't have one boss there. They've got all the different members of Congress that think they're experts in security, and, and this is a public building, and everybody's got their opinion as to how that should be protected. So there's so many cooks in the U.S. Capitol kitchen <laughs> that it's almost impossible to do your job. And that's part of the problem in any kind of inside the beltway issue. But on a practical level, there is no excuse for what happened because not only do you have a great department in the U.S. Capitol Police, but you have the U.S. Park Police, which is one of the best crowd control organizations I've ever worked with there. You have the D.C. Police, the Metropolitan Police Department. You have hordes of federal agents from the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force that are there. So why does this happen? And again, there's so many cooks in that kitchen that it's impossible to get the decisions made at times. Yeah. And I didn't, I don't want to spend too much time on that, but I, I knew you'd have some very specific thoughts and you got three layers that you're talking about, three prominent layers, but let's get to the book because I realized that I'm going to turn around. You and I could talk forever. And before I turn around, we're going to have run out of time. So four books, and I can't wait to hear what's number five. So we got Ghost, Confessions of a Counterterrorism Agent. We got number two, Chasing Shadows, which a lot of people just rave about, a special agent's lifelong hunt to bring a Cold War assassin to justice. Number three, Under Fire, The Untold Story of the Attack of Benghazi. And the one we're talking about today, Beirut Rules, The Murder of a CIA Station Agent and Hezbollah's War Against America. And I realize that I am saying Hezbollah the way I've heard the press say it, you say it differently. And every time I heard you say it differently in a podcast recently, I'm like, okay, I need to change the way I say it. <laughs> uh, well, uh, when you start looking at uh, an organization like Hezbollah, Hezbollah. Uh, it, it is one that, um, again, the element of surprise uh, was one that we always struggled with. We, we knew that we had this organization in the 80s called the Islamic Jihad Organization. We suspected that they were linked to Hezbollah. We kind of thought that the Iranians may have had a role with this, but we lacked a, a high degree of very specific evidence. And we would sit around and argue about this all the time, you know, the, the degree of Iranian control. And uh, it's one of those things that it should not have surprised us like it did. But, um, you know, the element of surprise when you, when you look at Bill Buckley, who's the centerpiece of, of the story, I mean, he was 13 when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And his sister told me, you know, the family would sit around the radio listening to this. And uh, that was one of those pivotal moments in America and so when the U.S. Embassy is bombed in 1983 at a very fortuitous time by Hezbollah, Bill volunteers to go. 
And he had been in the agency for almost 20 years at that point. He was 55 years old. Uh, he was a war hero. Uh, he had been decorated first as an 18-year-old young man in Korea, uh, a Silver Star recipient for rushing a machine gun nest. And then in Vietnam, he was a recipient of a second Silver Star uh, for gallantry under fire. So this was the type of man that he was that was always running towards danger. And there was something about him that was just different, David. And that's why I wanted to tell Bill's story. There you go. That's what I wanted to know, because I I was only vaguely familiar with this name. And once I started reading the book and getting to know you better and, and your purpose of this book, I thought, this is a true blue American hero to the likes of which I haven't seen in a very long time. And I just wonder, you know, first, you've now told me why you wanted to write the book. What were your personal insights and your feelings as you got to know Mr. Buckley? I mean, well, it was uh, very emotional when you started talking to friends and family. I mean, this was uh, one of these silent warriors that uh, literally, uh, you know, joined the military as soon as he graduated from high school and volunteered to go to Korea, where he served uh, with the first CAV, and then comes back, takes advantage of the GI Bill and gets his college degree and and learns a couple languages and. And then as soon as he could, he, he volunteers to go back into the military where he becomes one of Kennedy's first Green Berets and he's shipped off to Vietnam. And, um, you know, part of the book that I enjoyed putting together was the family gave me or entrusted uh, me with uh, the old fashioned selfies. They were black and white pictures of Bill from Vietnam with on the back, his handwritten notes, you know, such as hot as hell here, honey, I'm just trying to survive. Wow. And it, it really painted a picture of a guy who uh, always wanted to be a soldier and always wanted to serve his country. And he was quite good at it. He was a paramilitary officer inside the CIA, uh, you know, and, and those are, the, they are at the tip of the spear. You know, these are, uh, the teams that are in the Benghazis of the world and in the Kabuls of the world before we vacated. And Bill was always going around the world to these hotspots. So when the embassy bombing happened in 83, and literally the eyes and ears of U.S. intelligence is wiped out in, in Beirut, uh, Bill raises his hand and says, I'll go. And you know, these kinds of people, don't get me wrong, we have dedicated men and women that are volunteering to serve our great nation sure. every day around the world. And Bill was one of them. And um, because of his efforts, uh, he got U.S. intelligence back up and running uh, when uh, we needed it badly because we were getting our rear ends kicked by this group uh, in targeting Americans and planning hijackings and additional kidnappings and so forth. Now you said, uh, I think in this book, you took Bill Buckley's abduction in Beirut to make CIA protect other station chiefs so that it doesn't happen again. Do you feel that Washington has become more or will become more proactive than reactive in the future. And I think this may be one of your, one of your pulpit points, isn't it? Yeah. With, without a doubt, uh, you know, tragedy forces change. Uh, even if you can go back to my book, chasing shadows, you had uh, Israel an Israeli intelligence officer assassinated in 1973 in Bethesda, Maryland. And it took that assassination for the, Israeli intelligence service to start protecting Israeli diplomats around the world. And so you fast forward to uh, 1984 when Bill was kidnapped. As a result of his kidnapping, the CIA changed and they started doing a better job of protecting their people and their chiefs of station, uh, their lead uh, officers in any country. And you know, you could sit there until you're blue in the face and say, well, shouldn't they have been thinking about this ahead of time? Well, you know, hindsight is 2020. Uh, Buckley decides to go into Beirut 
to stand up our intelligence eyes and ears in a time period when he needed to be flexible, needed to work the streets, need to work his sources, needed to meet with the Lebanese intelligence service and the French and the Brits. And this was a guy that, uh, you know, again, had spent 20 years fighting uh, enemies all around the globe. And this was just another enemy. And uh, un unfortunately, this enemy caught up with Bill. And, you know, it's uh, a horrible, a horrible way for him to go. And such a, such a shame that a guy so brave that risked his life so many times and continued, as you said, going to face into the fire would be uh, taken that way. Yeah, it was his worst fear, too. Uh, his friends and family. Uh, he, Bill had had a friend uh, kidnapped and held at the, uh, uh, in, in Vietnam when he was there. And Bill was always uh, worried that um, he could be kidnapped. Uh, you know, when he would confide with his friends, he would say, you know, that was, that's my worst fear. And for that to materialize like that. And, you know, that's something I never knew when I was looking for him either. And, you know, when you, when you do one of these stories, David, uh, and, and, you know, guilt's a powerful driver as well. You know, I, I, I really, I really wanted to do more. We all tried to do more to find Bill when he was in captivity, but we simply lacked the intelligence assets on the ground. We, we literally had no human intelligence to help us we were getting very little information from our friends and, and heck, they were battling their own series of hostages. You know, the Brits had hostages, the French, the Germans, the South Koreans, the Russians, and uh, everybody was out looking for their hostages, but nobody had any information. And, and you know, Bill was held literally behind enemy lines and in, in Hezbollah stronghold. And whether we could have rescued him or not, if we could find him, is a different story, but uh, I want to believe that we we would have tried if we could have put eyes on a building that he might have been in. Yeah, uh, we're getting close to the time to wrap, and I want to be super respectful of your time. There's a couple of quick little points I want to make, and one of them is I want to go back to something because, <clears throat> again, watching this uh, these documentaries about 9/11 and seeing the planes hit, it, it was such a visceral moment of seeing a plane hit the building you're like okay I'm, I'm not actually seeing that and I think I was I think I was watching uh your appearance on Glenn Beck's show which was fascinating it was like an hour and a half I was riveted to it and you, you, were, you were talking about today's terrorists and I heard you say how terrorists are laser focused this is the phrase you said laser focused on aviation when it comes to harming us as you, you refer to it as, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, the perfect terrorist vehicle. Can you tell me more about that? It just really caught my attention. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for watching that interview. Uh, Glenn uh, was has been very, very gracious to me and, and for my books over the years. And um, it was an honor to be on his podcast. Um, if you look historically, uh, you know, modern day terror really has used uh, certain vehicles or implements to really uh, shock and all, all of us. And, and one has been the vehicle-borne improvised explosive device, your traditional truck or car bomb. And the other has been the use of aviation. And that goes back to groups such as the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine, General Command, and Black September. And then Hezbollah followed up with uh, the hijackings of, for example, uh, TWA-847. So if you look at the evolution of these groups, they really uh, stand on the shoulders of other giants that have been successful in the terror space. So it did not surprise me in the least that Al-Qaeda took advantage of aviation because it's your perfect terrorist vehicle. You've got captured people from all around the world. You've got, you've got families, you've got women and children. It, it like defines terror. It's almost like those Munich moments where uh, you've got a flying missile that you can guide it wherever you want it to be. Right. And it presents such unique challenges for the counterterrorism effort, meaning what do you do? 
does the U.S. military shoot that plane out of the sky that's headed towards uh, New York City? I mean, it, it, it paints such a horrible set of choices for you. And then from a counterterrorism resolution standpoint, and I've worked a lot of hijackings and I've debriefed a lot of uh, hostages being held on an on a aircraft, it's just sheer fright. And you don't know if it's going to get blown up, crashed, or if the rescue team is going to come in and start killing everybody by mistake. So uh, that's what I meant by that when I was on the Glenn Beck show. Okay, okay. And back to the element of terrorism and, and the massive disdain, hatred that uh, many have for Americans. Do you think that in our lifetime, Fred, that, that, um, and those of our children and even grandchildren, that, we're, that this is going to continue to remain the same situation? Yes, I do. I, I, I would like to think that um, it would dissipate in some capacity, but if you look at this as a student of history, uh, you can see that this has been around for a long time. And I don't think in any capacity will this diminish over the next foreseeable future. And certainly not in my lifetime or in my children's lifetime, I'm sad to say. You know, it's interesting. You know, you hear something and you, you hear it a certain way. And, and it isn't until <clears throat> you hear it put a different way that the image shifts in your mind. This is what I mean. I read the, the title Beirut Rules, and I heard it as a, uh, uh, a verb, Beirut Rules. And then I heard you make a comment or I read a comment, and you were talking about, no, Beirut Rules is in a noun. And so it seems as though in the past there have been a, a form of, I, I think I'm borrowing this true, a, an unspoken agreement, what my dad used to call a gentleman's agreement, where you would play by certain rules and you'd go, okay, well, you know, um, we're going to come after you, but you know, we're going to, we're going to do it this way. We'll, and we'll, we'll have this gap in the time that allow you to kind of gather your forces, but there's this gentlemanly rules. But now I get a sense that you're saying with both, both in part in the book and in general, that there's a sense of all bets are off. Without a doubt, uh, you know, the, the Cold War changed that. Uh, and by the moved. way, was that all over the place and completely incoherent or did you? No, I know exactly what you mean. Okay. Uh, we used to live in the espionage Cold War days on what was called Moscow rules, where our diplomats, our intelligence officers didn't attack each other. And Beirut rules changes that. And it's okay then to kill it's okay to pick up uh, the eyes and ears of a U.S. intelligence anywhere in the world and uh, hold them hostage uh, and, and let them die in a miserable kind of situation. And that's the asymmetric war that we're engaged with today. And thank goodness we have uh, a tremendous uh, number of brave men and women around the world that uh, is trying to get in front of these threats, but it's it's not an easy task. And I don't know if this is a tangent, but somewhere along the lines, as I was reading headlines, I was thinking of when I was use, thinking of the phrase and Beirut rules and all bets are off, and I, my mind went down, and I don't want to go down a rabbit hole, but I want to touch on the murder of Khashoggi, because in all of your work as an agent and so many levels throughout your career, have you ever seen anything, and I think the phrase I want to use is diabolical or flat-out dismissive, but have you ever seen such a lack of humanity in his, you know, a quote-unquote disappearance? Well, that certainly was a horrific act of terror, but uh, as shocking as uh, the murder of Daniel Pearl uh, and the list just goes on and on and on. I mean, look, David, you can look at all these events, um, you know, whether it be the, the Munich massacre when the 11 Israeli athletes were lined up and gunned down by the Black September organization. And you can think about uh, the, the gun 
put to the back of the head of U.S. Navy diver Robert Stedham during the hijacking of TWA Flight 847, and he was shot and killed and his body dumped on the tarmac. And, and the murder of Leon Klinghoffer on uh, the Achille Lauro hijacking by the, the PLF. So the list just goes on and on and on. So uh, brutality uh, is, uh, you know, par for the course in the terrorism arena, I'm sad to say. And um, that's just part of their theater when it comes to what they're trying to project uh, around the world and, and amplified significantly on social media, which we discussed when we first started, you know, there's, there's no shortage of, uh, of that uh, on any given day. And maybe you just answered my question there, but, and I'm going to steal this from Glenn Beck again, from that same conversations, but he, I think he was close to the end of the conversation and it was so perfectly timed too. And I'm like, what keeps Fred Burton up late at night? Well, I think today, certainly when you look at uh, the raging pandemic that uh, has caused so much uh, chaos on, on the world, and then you look at uh, the events of uh, January the 6th at the U.S. Capitol, and you, and you think about our, our nation and our society that is so fractured and in many ways uh, polarized that those are the kinds of things that that worry me strategically as I look over the horizon. And for example, when uh, I was at FBI headquarters the day that uh, Timothy McVeigh set off the uh, car bomb in Oklahoma City, and uh, John O'Neill was there, God rest his soul. Um, he, he perished in the trade towers collapse on 9-11. And we looked at that carnage and we said, this has got to be Middle Eastern terror. And it has to be Hezbollah. You look at the, show, the scope and the size of that blast and the damage that was done, and you put up the picture of the Oklahoma City Federal Building, and you put up the picture of the U.S. Embassy in Beirut. And what worries me, David, as you look at our fractured nation is that, you know, will we see the rise of another Timothy McVeigh in some capacity? And, you know, you get back to the ones we know about, don't really worry me. It's the ones that we don't know about that tend to come back and haunt us. And that's what keeps me up at night. Gotcha. Uh, I'm going to sound like I'm being overly playful, but uh, back to our opening conversation about Instagram, I want to bring in images of Sasha. Happy thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she's a good girl. Uh, yeah. We recently uh, adopted a new uh, lab from the Hearts of Texas Lab Rescue, which is a wonderful organization. We've we've adopted uh, two previous labs there, and I always try to figure out a way to to work my labs into whatever story I'm working on. So those that are uh, are tentative to details with my books will will be able to pull out a few names and oh. stay tuned for Sasha's. Well, okay, so we've been talking about Beirut rules, the murder of a CIA station agent and Hezbollah's uh, war against America. Now, what is book five? Are you talking about it yet? Can you give us an inside scoop? Do you have a, have you a, a title? How far away is it? are you from that book? Well, uh, I can't talk about it yet, okay. uh, but I will say this, that uh, I'm going to be uh, shining what I think is a, a spotlight onto a certain story that needs to be told, because I'm a firm believer of that, that uh, similar to the vein of Chasing Shadows and Beirut Rules, where bringing a, uh, some cases to light that uh, are long forgotten and people should have more visibility into them, uh, good, bad, and indifferent uh, as a nation. Next year, I'm guessing? Uh, well, inshallah, uh, I, I would like to hope that uh, we would see it published by 2023, maybe. Okay, okay. Nonfiction, awesome. nonfiction takes a while, and, and I've got to run it through the publication review board at the, the CIA, which, you know, they do good work. They, they've got a tough job, and 
they're always uh, criticized, but I'm sympathetic to their plight because uh, there's so many people writing books today. It's, as you know, it's, uh, it's a challenge. It can be a little daunting. Uh, I, I think of this very often, but I cling to the fact, yes, even amongst all the vast people crafting all sorts of stories, if you have a particular story with a particular voice and a particular message, it will find its audience. I, I believe if I didn't believe that, I just wouldn't do it. Oh, I agree with you. And uh, like my previous books, whether it be Chasing Shadows or, or Under Fire or Baby Rules, uh, I really have been surprised at some of the things I've uncovered with this new story. So we'll see. We'll, you know, people find it of interest. Um, I think so. But as you and I both know, uh, uh, it's a tough business. Oh, yeah. We didn't even get to this, but I do want to give you a quick plug that, folks, you got to catch Fred's podcast, the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. Give us a one-minute blurb on what your podcast is about. Oh, why, thank you, David. You're very kind to, to mention that. Uh, I try to look at unique topics in the field of protection or security or safety. And, uh, of course, we've had Brad Thor on and Jack Carr uh, and then we also have had some very interesting people on to include uh, one of the individuals that really helped design the polygraph program for U.S. intelligence. Uh, so uh, we've had everything on from technical surveillance. Uh, I, I've got a new one that dropped today with uh, the director of the ADL's Office of Extremism talking about some of the, the trends he's seeing with hate uh, around America today. So uh, I'm always looking for interesting people to have. Uh, and so have a listen and let me know what you think. Awesome. Well, folks, you can learn more about Fred at officialfredburton.com. And of course, follow Fred on all his social channels. Meet dog, uh, beautiful, beautiful pup, Sasha. I did have to, I did do this, Fred, as I was waiting for you to come on. I thought hey, he's going to appreciate this. So here's Folks listening won't be able to appreciate it, but there's my Dexter. Oh, wow. <laughs> Dexter looks like a good boy there. Hopefully you put that on uh, Instagram. I will do that today just for you. Yeah, he he almost got a little piece of a UPS uh, delivery guy yesterday. <laughs> I had to <laughs> take him out to the dog shed and say, we can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he looks like a good boy. So yeah. thank you for sharing that. We yeah, need to see him on Instagram. He will be there. And Fred, thank you so much, not only for your service, your kindness, but your time and uh, fighting the good fight and providing great stories and, and facts for everyone to read. It's just really been a, a delightful time to spend with you. Well, you're very kind, David. I, I thank you so much for having, having me on. Thanks to Fred Burton for his talents, time, and service to his country. Now, let's look ahead to next Friday's The Thriller Zone, when I'll welcome Suzanne Chazen. Suzanne's the award-winning author of The Fragile Edge, a story that Lee Child calls first-rate. Suzanne's fiery protagonist, Puerto Rican police detective Jimmy Vega, who returns in a sixth installment, is on the hunt for a predator stalking the unforgiving landscape of immigrant America. Before I go, I encourage you to subscribe to our YouTube channel, and thank you for following along wherever you get your podcast. Now, have a great week, and I'll talk to you next time on The Thriller Zone.